The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Tonight we're continuing and coming toward the end of our series uh, in Deuteronomy. We, uh, as mentioned, are, are not covering the bulk of the, the book that focuses on specific laws, but are looking at some of the key themes here, and we come tonight to chapter 30, which is perhaps the crucial passage in the book of Deuteronomy. If, if Deuteronomy is Moses' address to the people of Israel as they're preparing to cross the Jordan into the promised land, uh, if Deuteronomy is Moses' call to obedience because obedience is the prerequisite for living in God's land, then Moses' call and the future of Israel's stay in the promised land hinges on the verses we come to tonight in Deuteronomy chapter 30. So if you would join me as we read Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 10. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and more numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you, and you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you, as he took delight in prospering your fathers. When you obey the voice of the Lord your God, to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Let's pray. God, this is your word. We thank you that you are a God who speaks, that you have spoken to us and continue to speak to us by your spirit today. Pray that you would guide our thoughts tonight in Christ's name. Amen. As many of you know, as, as parents, one of our chief desires for our children uh, is to, to set them up for success. We want to help them obey. We want to help them respond the way we know that they ought to respond. And so in various situations, we will repeatedly remind them of how they ought to act in, in a given scenario. I remember experiencing this as a child, and now I'm starting to experience this as a parent. The, the numbered lectures 
as we referred to them uh, as a child, that would occur in each given scenario in life. So, for instance, there was, there was the birthday party lecture. And it, it consisted of, you know, thank all your guests who come to your birthday party. Make sure they're having a good time. It's, it's about them and not about you. Share your toys. Let, let them go first. Um, and so on and so forth. And then, and then, of course, there was the going over to someone else's house lecture. And that would, would look like, well, look adults in the eye when, when they talk to you and, and thank them for the food and having us over. Include all the kids that are there. Uh, don't get too wild or crazy in, in a friend's house and, and you go on from there. Or, or there, was the, there was the church dinner lecture, which looked like don't rush to be the first person in line. Take modest amounts of two desserts or less and don't take just macaroni and cheese your first time through the line. And, of course, remember your manners while you eat. And, of course, we remember this. We joke about it as siblings. Now I'm starting to notice the patterns form in my own lectures. We want them to know how they ought to behave. But, of course, we not only want to set our children up for success to do what they ought to do in each scenario, as a parent, we also want our children to know how they ought to respond when they fail, how they ought to act and respond when they fail. Because they will fail just like I will fail is almost as important or perhaps even more important than what they should do in each given scenario. And here in Deuteronomy chapter 30, God is speaking through Moses to his children in much the same way. God throughout the book of Deuteronomy has given them specific laws that apply to given scenarios. When, when this happens in the land, this is how you should obey the Lord your God. In each scenario of worship, family, marriage, sexuality, property, here's how you should act. God has said to his people. But, but God knows Israel's heart. He knows that Israel is going to disobey him. And so God also wants Israel to know how they should respond when they fail. And so right here at the beginning of chapter 30, God speaks. He wants Israel to know that when they have disobeyed, there is hope. There is still guidelines for how to respond. I know we have skipped a few chapters here, so just uh, as a brief summary, after going through the specific laws that God was giving to his people, chapters 27 through 29 of Deuteronomy give a long list of blessings and curses. If you obey the law of the Lord, these are the blessings that will come upon you. If you disobey the law of the Lord, these are the curses that will come upon you. And chapter 29 specifically ended with a very extensive list of bleak curses. God described this promised land, this land flowing with milk and honey as a land that would be full of sickness, that would be burnt out with brimstone and salt where nothing could be sown and nothing could grow, no plant could sprout. In fact, any Israelite, I think, would would look at this description and think of something like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah where people would pass by and say when they saw this, this formerly fruitful land of God's people, they would say, why has the Lord done this to the land? What could cause this great heat of anger to fall on God's people? That was the bleak outlook at the end of Deuteronomy 29. But for an Israelite, they might hear these blessings and curses as hypotheticals. If you obey, here are the blessings. If you disobey, here are the curses. And certainly, in one sense, they are. But as soon as we start reading in Deuteronomy chapter 30, from from the first words of verse 1, we realize that this devastating picture of punishment is not just a hypothetical. 
Moses is anticipating that these warnings, that these curses will come upon you. It is not if all of these things come upon you, but Moses says, and when all of these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse. And Moses describes the scenario of Israel scattered among the nations to the uttermost parts of the earth. See, through the wisdom and the revelation of God, Moses foresees the outline of what's to come. Israel's repeated fall into idolatry and pagan worship, their presumption and distraction from the love of God is going to land them in the midst of the curses that Moses has just laid out. And I think if you, if you put yourself in the moment, if you step back and imagine yourself in Moses' shoes for a moment, can you imagine the heart of Moses as he looks out on the, on the edge of the promised land? Here are the, the, the Israelites, this, this generation who has already seen God's punishment come on one generation, now preparing to walk into God's promised land. Here are the people that Moses has led through the wilderness, who he has led through both blessing and discipline. The people whom God has chosen, whom God has set his love on out of his own mere good pleasure. This people that God has rescued again and again, that God has miraculously fed and given water. God has displayed his divine power over and over. And here's Moses looking out, thinking about all that that God has, has led him to do and bringing this people here. And Moses must tell this people, this people that he has led year after year, of the curses that are going to come upon them, of the sin that they are going to commit, the failure and the punishment that he knows are ahead of God's people. What, what a moment, what a, what a heartbreaking scenario it must be for Moses. But though Moses' words presume exile and punishment, notice also that his words here do not, uh, are not limited to despair. Because Moses also has a word of hope to offer to Israel. See, God's love is deep enough, faithful enough, that if this disobedient people, living as strangers, even in the furthest corners of the world, will remember God's words and turn to the Lord their God and obey his voice with all their heart and soul, God will remember his words and and he will return them to the land. He will bring them back and restore their fortunes and have mercy on them. The promises that Moses lays out are the promises of blessing. There's, if, you, if you compare the list of blessings that, that Moses had given to the people of Israel to the promises that, that Moses gives Israel in their moment of repentance, there's no difference. God is offering and promising the fullness of blessing even to a sinful people who repent and turn back to him. And so Moses, even as he gives this outlook, this discouraging outlook, also offers a word of hope that in repentance, the fullness of God's blessing is still available thanks to God's mercy and God's faithfulness. This is a great word of hope for Israel. But for anyone who's read the book of Deuteronomy, in fact, for anyone who knows anything about the people of Israel, I think this word of, well, if you return to the Lord, he will have mercy on you and bring you back to the land, certainly comes with with a, a note of doubt or skepticism. Because we know, we know Israel. We know their tendency to sin. And here on the edge of the Jordan, Israel has perhaps the greatest advantage to obedience. Israel has just seen, fresh in their minds, all of the work of, of God. Israel has seen the, the rescue of the Red Sea. They've, they've seen the rescue from Egypt. They've seen God feed them with manna every day of their lives, this generation 
The only food they would likely have eaten on a regular basis would have been manna that God miraculously gave to them day after day. They are about to see the, the, the Jordan River parted. The walls of Jericho fall down. Massive armies defeated. Moses, not, not only has, has this generation seen all that God has done, and not only has everything God done fresh in their minds, but Moses has just now reminded them of God's laws. He's just given them a fresh reminder of the dangers of idolatry, the fresh reminder to set their heart and their love on the Lord their God. If there's any generation, if there's any moment where we'd say Israel must be set up for success here, they know who God is, they've seen God work, they know his laws, surely this is the generation set up for success. And yet Moses has said that, that this people, this people of Israel is going to fail, that sin is going to be the result. And if Israel is going to disobey now, what possible assurance is there that Israel will be able to continue in this obedience? And so the natural question that should be in our mind is, well, well, great, so, so God will respond with mercy, but is this just setting up a never-ending cycle? Is this just setting up a never-ending cycle? Well, sure, Israel will turn and repent and come to the Lord, and the Lord will have mercy and bring them back, but, but is this setting up a cycle where Israel is going to disobey, and then they'll be cast out again? And maybe they'll turn to the Lord again, but they're going to keep sinning. In other words, what is possibly going to keep the sinful heart of God's people from continuing to be on full display and to keep there from being any permanent hope of living in God's land? Isn't this a a reasonable doubt? Isn't this a reasonable doubt as we know Israel's heart, as we know our own hearts and the depth of sin? That's where, that's where this passage comes to the crux of the issue. That's where we come in verse 6 of this passage to, the, to the, the most important point for us to hear in the book of Deuteronomy. As Deuteronomy comes with God's laws and his blessings and curses, the future of Israel and the future of these blessings and curses hinges on verse 6. Look at verse 6. Here in verse 6, Moses declares, The Lord, the Lord your God, when he brings you back from exile, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you might live. See, this verse clarifies the crux of the issue. There is no hope of permanent obedience, of long-term obedience from God's people unless the Lord circumcises their hearts and enables them to obey. But not only does verse 6 give us the crux of the issue, verse 6 also grounds our hope for Israel. Because verse 6 is not just an if. Verse 6 is is giving a promise of God. This verse grounds real hope because it is hope grounded on the faithful promise of the always effective work of God. God will circumcise their hearts so that they might live. This verse, this verse is the greatest possible reason for Israel to give all praise and glory to the Lord, to hope in their God. Because though sin will come, they have hope in the work of God and the promise of God, who will circumcise their heart and give them the ability to obey that they so desperately need. As we move through the Old Testament, it's this promise, this promise that God himself is going to change the hearts of his people and so enable them to obey and to do what they cannot do on their own that continually grounds the hope of Israel. We see it here in the promise that the Lord will circumcise the hearts of his people. Jeremiah 31 is another chapter where the prophet Jeremiah gives the same hope. 
In Jeremiah 31, God makes a promise that He will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. After exile, after punishment has come, God, through Jeremiah, gives this promise. I will make a new covenant with my people. And in this new covenant, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Why? Because God has written it on their hearts. You see the core promise of the new covenant? That God is going to write this law on our hearts. It's going to give us the heart of obedience that we so desperately need. The same could be said in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 36, the prophet Ezekiel, looking beyond exile, gives the promise of God when God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. See, over and over again, Israel has hope. Israel has hope again and again because God declares that he will do the work of changing their hearts. He will do the work of enabling the obedience that they so desperately need. Perhaps we could, we could summarize things this way. Amidst all of the blessings and the curses, the calls to obedience, the warnings of judgment, underneath them all stands God's promise. God's promise that he will be faithful to his people. He will bring them back. He will circumcise their heart. He will give them solid hope of relationship with him in his presence And it's not merely hypothetical because it rests on the promise of God. Could there be anything more life-giving or anything more encouraging to a people who knows its own sin than to hear God's promise that he will circumcise their heart, that he will write his law on their heart, that he will give them new hearts and the obedience that they need? I think uh, there's actually a, 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 another subtle picture of this promise here in Deuteronomy. We haven't read uh, it exactly tonight, but in the blessings and curses, everything in this passage is hindering on these blessings and curses. And if you were to go back and read the blessings and the curses, and if you were to read the renewal of the covenant that, uh, that, Moa, or that uh, Moses commands the people to make when they come into the promised land in chapter 29, you would find that that uh, Moses tells the people that they should come to two mountains, to come to two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerasim. And Israel should divide half of Israel on one mountain and half on the other mountain and renew the covenant before God. And on the one mountain, half of Israel should declare all the blessings that God has declared. And on the other mountain, the other half of Israel should declare all the curses. And you, so you have this picture of Israel standing on these two mountains declaring blessings and cursings. What will happen to God's people? Will it be blessing or curse? But if I could show you a map, if I could show you a map up here of Israel, you would see that Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim are two mountains right next to each other. And at the bottom of the mountain is a city, the city of Shechem. And the city of Shechem is significant. Because in in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham out of Ur and Haran and tells him to go to a promised land. And the first city in the promised land that Abraham comes to is Shechem. And we're told that Abraham built an altar to God at Shechem. And at Shechem, God appeared to Abraham and declared to him, I will give this land to you and to your offspring. I will be their God. They will be my people. So do you see, underneath the blessings and the curses stands the promise of God. 
underneath the blessings and the curses, what will happen stands the certainty of what God will do. He will be faithful to his people. He will be faithful to the offspring of Abraham. He will do it because he is God and he has promised it. See, here we have the heart of this text and perhaps also the heart of Deuteronomy. Israel will disobey God's laws. They will be driven from the land because they do not love the Lord and they will not obey him. But there is still hope because God himself will show up and act and circumcise their heart to obedience. God will prepare their heart to love him, to, to bring about the blessings, and so to earn this life that Israel so longs for and that God is prepared to give them. That's the core of the text. But before we close, I want to consider three applications, three key applications that we hear from this text. First, this text gives us a deep cause to praise God. See, God's promise to circumcise his people's heart and to enable their obedience is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And if you look into the New Testament, and if you were to turn to Hebrews chapter 8, and we don't have time to read the full chapter tonight, but Hebrews chapter 8 picks up on this very promise. It picks up on the words of Jeremiah 31, where God says in the new covenant, I will write my laws on your hearts. And we learn from Hebrews chapter 8 that all who come to Christ by faith are recipients of this new covenant where God is writing His law on our hearts and God is bringing about the obedience that we need. See, the reason that any of us know God, love God, obey God is because of His work in us. And so anytime we look in our life and anytime we see evidence of obedience... Any time we notice any side of, of us which loves the Lord our God or obeys the Lord of God, we ought to be amazed and praise Him because He is the one who has brought that about. Any obedience or faithfulness we see in our life is due to the faithfulness of God to change our hearts. And so anytime we see anything of our, in our life of obedience or of love, we ought to look to our God and praise Him because He alone deserves the credit, the praise, and the thanks for what He has done. And one commentator in this passage tells the story of a Muslim student, a Muslim student who came to Christ while at university. And several of his friends were surprised at his conversion, and they came to this student. They said, Ahmed, we hear that you have changed your religion. This young man responded, Oh no, I have not changed my religion. My religion has changed me. And isn't that the crux of the issue? This is not a decision for us to change our religion. This is a matter of God changing us. This is the work of God through Christ in our hearts. And so shouldn't every fresh reminder of this truth, every moment of God-worked obedience, every reminder of our need for forgiveness cause us to burst out in praise to our God? As I thought about this, I couldn't help but think about uh, a child, perhaps myself many times, a child who grows so used to his mother preparing every meal for him and washing all of his clothes that it never occurs to him that he might offer thanks to his mother for what she does to him. Isn't that like our living of the Christian life sometimes, where every moment of faithfulness on our part is due only to the work of God, and may we never be like the child who forgets to give thanks and praise to the work of God that it's evidenced in our life moment after moment after moment. Let this text remind us of God's work and our call to praise him. Second, look at how this text guides our response when we fail. 
This text is written to Israel as an instruction to them of what they ought to do when their sin overtakes them. We all face the temptation to respond badly to our own failures. See, we tend to to respond in one of two ways when we fail. On the one hand, we can be tempted to assume that since God is a God of grace and mercy, our sin and failures aren't really a very big deal. God will forgive us. God's the God who works all this anyways. So my disobedience, there's not really much I can do about him. It's not that big of a deal. He forgives us in Christ. Nothing to worry about. And we can just forget our sins and move on, and we expect everyone else we've sinned against to forget about it and move on too. And since we forget about our own failures and move on, we just assume that God must forget about them and move on as well. But this text clearly, this clearly reminds us that disobedience and sin will be punished. This text opens with Israel in exile to the uttermost parts of the earth because of sin. Sin will yield punishment because sin brings a breach in our relationship with God. And the only possible consequence of a breached relationship with God due to our sin is punishment. And while there is certainly hope of mercy and forgiveness in Christ, we are called to real repentance a real turning and returning to the Lord. This text urges us never to take our sin too lightly. On the other hand, we can respond to our sin by beating ourselves up and deciding to believe that we are unforgivable or beyond hope. We see ourselves failing over and over again, and in our pride, we're horrified by our sin. We can't believe we would sin like this, and so we assume that God is horrified at our sin too. And He is. But in our pride, we cannot get over what we've done or who we are. And so we assume God cannot get over what we've done or who we are either. And again, this text strongly rejects this response. It strongly rejects our beating up of ourselves over our sin and considering ourselves beyond hope. Israel stuck in the furthest corners of heaven and earth because of deep, repeated, offensive idolatry and sin, and yet God here offers full forgiveness. He restores them to the land, and he uses language like If you turn again, I will again delight in prospering you. See, the hope of a sinner, the hope of a sinner who turns to God the Savior is a hope of again having a God who takes delight in him. Full forgiveness, full mercy. Again, all of the blessings are restored through the goodness and the faithfulness and the mercy of God. And this hope is equally ours in Christ. Through Christ Jesus, we have the hope of full forgiveness and full restoration if we believe God's assessment of us in Christ rather than our own assessment of ourselves and our pride. So this passage reminds us that real repentance is essential. We cannot take sin lightly. But with real repentance is full restoration and blessing on God's initiative made possible through the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus. This passage guides our response when we fail. Third, and lastly, Notice how this passage talks about obedience. This passage guides our hearts and our longing for obedience so perfectly. Notice that obedience does not come down to trying harder, making more efforts. Let's just, let's just grit our teeth and try to do our best. We feel our temptations. We feel our sins, so we'll just respond by buckling down. That's not the message of hope that this passage gives. According to this passage, obedience comes down to our hearts. 
all our efforts to obey will still end up with distracted, idolatrous disobedience unless our heart has been changed to long for and love our God. And the implications of this are so helpful, so helpful for our day-to-day life. If our life is marked by disobedience and sin, the solution is not to buck up and try harder. I know my own life, and I think you know your own life, to know that this is not much hope. Bucking up and, and trying harder often leads just to more failure, to greater discouragement. Rather, the solution here is to run to God. To run to God through Christ Jesus because He is the one who gives us both the desire and the ability to obey. The whole New Testament is full of our calls to turn to Him because in Him we find our only hope of forgiveness, but in Him we also find our only hope of sanctification. And so this passage is telling us, do we struggle with sin? Do we see sin and disobedience in our life? The resolve is not to despair or try to work, work, work hard. The the call is to turn to God who brings about holiness and sanctification. This passage also shows us what we should be aiming for. The obedience that leads to blessing is a matter of the heart. Three times this passage defines obedience as wholehearted, wholehearted love for our God. In verse, verse 2, verse 6, and verse 10, all say that loving the Lord and obeying Him is something we do with our whole hearts and our whole souls. So the goal of our life is to grow in a wholehearted love for God because it's this wholehearted love for Him that directs our obedience. When I think of doing something with my whole heart, the first analogy that comes to mind is playing sports. I love playing sports, and uh, I'm told, I don't actually remember this story, but I'm told by my father that he saw this wholehearted love for sports in college when he brought me back to campus after Easter break one weekend. We drove back onto campus after Easter break, and as we drove into campus, I noticed that there was a Frisbee game going on in the center of campus. And apparently, I turned to my dad, uh, and I said, "Uh, Dad, um, could you let me out here, and would you take my suitcase back to my dorm room for me, because I need to get to the Frisbee game. That's wholehearted devotion, because it dictates your behavior. It dictates your response. It captures your attention. It sets your priorities. That's what happens when your heart is captured. And that's a picture of what our love for our Lord is supposed to be, wholehearted, whole-souled, so that obedience to Him and relationship with Him takes priority, dictates our behavior, captures our attention, and yields obedience. And we know, and we have to admit, that our hearts are not always here. Our emotional attachment to our God comes and goes. Our obedience is so often fleeting. But this is our call, and this is our prayer. This is our pursuit. May God give us an ever-holer heart, an ever-holer heart of love for Him, a greater, a fuller love for our God. And, and as I think about this, I, I can't help but think, may the hours of my day and the efforts of my heart be turned towards cultivating this love for my God. That's the call of effort. That's where my efforts are to be. How can I use the minutes and the hours of my day today to cultivate this love for my God? It's running to Him. It's begging Him, calling on Him to give us this wholehearted love for Him that yields obedience. And so we may we encourage each other and pray for each other toward this end. These calls to repentance, to sorrow over sin, to wholehearted obedience, these are part of God's reminders to Israel and now to us 
for how to act and how to respond. But the glory of getting this reminder is that it comes in the context of the promise, the promise that God is the one who works, that God is the one who brings this about. God initiates his works in us and that our hope rests on God's work, that our failures do not overcome his faithfulness to his promise. He will circumcise the hearts of his people, and so we will have life. The only logical response is to come to him, to run to him, and find hope for our souls. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this precious promise that in the midst of sin and failure and the deepest consequence and punishment, we can turn and call upon the Lord. And our great hope in calling upon the Lord is that he will circumcise our hearts, that he will change our hearts to give us the love for him which flows out into obedience. O God, may our great desire and passion be to run to him, to pursue him, to draw near to him, to pray for this heart, this heart that loves our Lord, our God, so that we might obey you, give glory to your name, and find life in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.